Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week, we bring you talks from the final of the Theology Slam 2021. The first talk is by Imogen Ball, a final year ordinand and MA student at Trinity College Bristol. She speaks on creativity in a time of pandemic. She's followed by Josh House, a recent theology graduate from the University of Leeds, who's now a trainee RE teacher. He speaks on community in a time of pandemic. And the final talk is by Flo O'Taylor, a PhD student at Durham University. Her topic is justice in a time of pandemic. The 2022 Theology Slam is organised jointly by The Church Times, SCM Press and HeartEdge, and is open to anyone aged 18 to 35. Entries close at 11.59pm on Monday, 6th of June. To find out how to enter, visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash theology hyphen slam. In the womb, make space, creates weights. A form which is not my own, yet of me from me, within me. The time comes, birthed, born, breeds, my new creation. I begin in the womb. A thought, a spark, a potential being. I've begun forming, growing, hoping the time comes. Birthed, born, breeds, a new creation. Creative compassion is inspired by mirroring the womb and compassion. Creative compassion fundamentally shifts compassion outwards, beyond ourself and towards the other. Let's begin with two words, the womb and compassion. Compassion in English stems from the Latin com, with, and pati, to suffer. Producing that popular understanding of compassion as to suffer with, putting ourselves in the shoes of the other or feeling their pain. The biblical Hebrew racham goes way beyond this. Racham, to have compassion, rachum, compassionate, and rachamim, compassion. All share the same three root letters as racham. R-H-M. Rechem is uniquely reserved for the female reproductive organ, the womb. Now, just because these words share the same three foundational letters does not mean they have the same meaning. But there is something that grabs my attention, a depth of meaning to be mined, as we mirror these strangely related terms. By mirroring the womb and compassion, we reveal glimpses of creative compassion. Using body parts to express human emotion is seen elsewhere in scripture. Of particular note is the Greek word splagnon, which means the inner parts or the guts or the liver. And in some extra biblical texts can also be the womb. Splagnon is the bodily metaphor for pity or compassion. 
And so these pairings, rechem and racham, splagnon and the verb splagnizo, embody compassion. Perhaps even in wombing compassion. Compassion is seated at the epicenter of the human body. The womb has the potential to hold new life, to grow and nurture the other. The womb can and does suffer, and it suffers with the one that it holds in a variety of painful, devastating and complex ways. But the potential for the womb is ultimately creative. The womb makes space to grow and nurture the other. And so as we mirror the womb and compassion, we go beyond the Latin to suffer with and begin to explore compassion that is creative at its core. By mirroring the womb and compassion, we inspire creative compassion. What, if anything, does creative compassion mean for us? Firstly, creative compassion is from God. Our God is gracious and rachum, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. These liturgical lines echoing through scripture speak of a God who is compassionate, rachum. Our God is characteristically compassionate, a compassionate creator whose creativity in creation was outward, beyond God's self, towards the other. Jesus and his 12 disciples got in a boat and went to a desert place. Many people followed him so that when they landed, a great crowd had gathered. Jesus looked on the crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus taught them many things. And when it grew dark, he said to his disciples, give them something to eat. And so with five loaves and two fish, they fed a great crowd. Jesus had compassion, splagnizo, on the great crowd. Jesus was in a desert place, a barren space, a wasteland of nothingness, and into that place he created, multiplying bread and fish, sustaining and nurturing this great crowd with physical and spiritual food. Jesus, the embodied and enwombed one, had compassion. This is our God the embodied and compassionate creator. By mirroring the womb and compassion, we inspire creative compassion from God. Creative compassion is also for all. Creative compassion is not reserved for the womb. It's not reserved for mothers, not reserved for people who've experienced creative compassion in their own womb, but creative compassion is for all because all are made in the image of God. We do not all bear children, but we all bear God's image. And so we are called to creative compassion as image bearers of our compassionate creator. By mirroring the womb and compassion, we inspire creative compassion from God and for all. 
Finally, creative compassion is for now. It is for such a time as this. As we look upon the crowds, as we see the chaos of pandemic, the devastation of injustice and the gut-wrenching grief of disease, we are called to creative compassion. Creative compassion that goes beyond simply to suffer with. Creative compassion that is not content with reactive responses, a sticky plaster, a patch-up job, or simplistic excuses. Creative compassion builds relationships instead of a one-off handout. It invites people in rather than transferring a tenor. Creative compassion is active imagining. It is envisaging and enacting a future that is better. Creative compassion makes space to grow and nurture the other. By mirroring the womb and compassion, we inspire creative compassion from God for all and for now. Let's return to those two words, the womb and compassion. What if our compassion went beyond to suffer with and instead embraced calm passion? to be with passion, perhaps even the passion of Christ, which goes beyond the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is God's salvific act for humanity, not for God's self, but for the other. By mirroring the womb and compassion, we inspire creative compassion from God for all and for now. Out from the womb, great groans goes this life of another, to nurture, to give, to grow. The time will come, rebirthed, reborn, deep breath, create. This time last year, I was sitting in a hot, sweaty attic room writing my undergraduate dissertation. At the same time, the news of this new virus had been whirring in the background now for a couple of weeks. I can recall going from student society events to the student bar, walking in, seeing TV screens with the news programmes with those little headlines at the bottom which were warning about this novel virus. But at the time, it didn't really seem to affect us. It, it seemed far away, it didn't seem proximate. So it was quite a shock when all of a sudden we were plunged into lockdown. I can recall sitting at my desk in that hot room with the sun streaming through the skylight onto that desk, messied with books, papers, pens. And I can remember staring at that computer screen with exhaustion because I was overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but I was feeling those feelings of anxiety, worry, fear of this new threat and grief. Most formidably for me was the grief, this acute awareness of the number of lives being lost. And out of my despair, I remember calling my closest friend Joe just to rage, to let it all out, when really all I could let out were tears. And I mean like, ugly tears, like really bawling, and saying to him 
how can this be? I don't get it. I don't understand. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. I was in shock because this was suffering on a scale that I, perhaps we, have never seen before. And it simply did not compute. But there's a point to this story. Most of us, if not the majority, have never experienced suffering on this level before. This is a new kind of prolonged fear, prolonged grief, prolonged exhaustion, if you've experienced that. And if you have, my question is, well, what will its impact be? Will it leave a mark, an imprint? If so, how? More specifically on who? Because we know that the virus has compounded those pre-existing injustices in our society. So my question becomes, how will we reflect on this time? And I suggest that we use the lens of trauma to understand that. Trauma which focuses on the imprint of pain. As Dr. Bessel van der Kolk puts it, a world-leading expert in trauma, trauma is not the story of that which happened back then, but it is the current imprint of that pain, horror and fear living inside people. So when we look at that pandemic as one continuous event, some people might leave it feeling as though it's been too much, too fast or too soon for them to process, for them to make sense of and integrate into their bodies. And when they cannot, if they cannot, it will leave its mark both on the mind and simultaneously the body. To use Christian terminology, trauma is the suffering that remains. It is the imprint of suffering. But it doesn't just end with us, it is passed on intergenerationally, throughout communities. And so it begs the question, how will we bear witness? When we look at Christ, we see it with him too. On the first day he is crucified and he returns on the third, bearing the wounds of the cross. His suffering has left its imprint. The wounds remain. Christ bears the trauma of the cross. Christ in his redeemed, triumphant form, bears the wounds of the cross. On that third day, when he's resurrected, but but just pause, just just wait a second, asks Professor Shelley Rambo. Don't don't rush to redemption. Don't rush from that first to the third day, but pause, pause in that middle day, in that second day, in that holy Saturday. Sit with the disciples who on that first holy Saturday have just witnessed the death of their Messiah the one who they thought was going to redeem Israel, sit with them in that liminal space between life and death and death and life. A space which doesn't rush to triumphant redemption because it can't, it cannot. Despite the absence of all else, the disciples remain. They remain with that divine love mediated through the Holy Spirit. They remain in that space and bear witness to Christ's death by remaining. They bear witness to the trauma of the cross by remaining in that love. Let us bear that same witness.
it is in my life as a teacher that I see the power of this bearing witness, of this remaining in love. That same love which is constitutive of God in the Trinity and that which Jesus shares with the marginalised, those likely dealing with the trauma of neglect from their communities. For the young people I work with, that becomes restorative, not redemptive, but by bearing witness to their experiences, by remaining with them in that place, offering that unconditional love which does not judge, which does not shame, but is completely accepting, we begin to unsettle those self-narratives of failure, self-loathing, of shame. Little by little, that love restores. With that self-acceptance, and perhaps over the time, those wounds will be embraced like that of Christ. But we must not rush to redemption. We must not jump to the third day, but we must pause and sit in that middle day and bear witness to that experience, to that trauma that remains. Let us bear that same witness. So what does this have to do with the pandemic? Well, it's about our theology, because when we are attentive to the reality of trauma, our theology is disrupted. It disrupts narratives of suffering, our, narr our triumphant narratives of redemption, our ideas of sin, of love, and most importantly, that of self-love and self-acceptance. Because when we are attentive to the reality of trauma, we become regrounded, recentered in the essentials of Jesus's message and the reality of God, that of love. Not some lofty, theoretical, banal love, but one which bears witness by remaining and is potentially restorative. So how will we bear witness to those wounds that remain from the pandemic? How will we bear witness to those marginalised groups whose prolonged fear, grief, worry, stress, exhaustion did not begin in the pandemic? And how will we bear witness in our theology to the, to the wounds that remain? How will we bear witness in our theology to the trauma of the cross? How will we bear witness sit in that middle day and bear witness in our theology to the reality of trauma. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news for the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus chose these words from Isaiah 61 to begin his public ministry. Justice is at the heart of his life and mission. He heard the cry of the afflicted and took the material conditions of the oppressed seriously calling us to do the same. We are four days from the first anniversary of the first national lockdown, 
We are currently enduring our third. Hope does finally seem to be on the horizon for many. And yet, as we begin to be able to imagine a future once more, we must not forget the systemic injustices we have witnessed in this past year of pandemic. Because while the pandemic's been a collective experience, it has not been an equitable one. Rather, it has exposed and exacerbated fault lines of inequality along the lines of race and class in our society. A disproportionately high number of black, Asian and ethnic minority people have died. 70,000 people have been made homeless and rates of domestic violence have soared. All the while, certain circles, often close to government ministers, have been profiting lucratively. While we're all experiencing the same pandemic, our experiences are certainly not the same. And so shouldn't we at least ask if the scale of our current crisis, with a second peak higher and more deadly than the first, is at least in part due to a political imagination that prioritises profit over people during a pandemic. Now, it's natural when faced with suffering of this scale that we want to avert our eyes or look for easy answers. As Christians, we might want to reach for a redemptive narrative, give the government some grace, pray for unity or avoid mixing religion and politics altogether. And yet, with Simone Weil, a Christian mystic and political activist who herself was thinking and writing during a different period of crisis in the 1930s, I want to invite us to resist these urges. Because excusing a political imagination that oppresses the already marginalised risks minimising and perpetuating their affliction. Seeking unity without repentance or reparations is dangerous and risks propagating injustice. You see, politics is more than policies and Westminster debates. It is a practice of the imagination. And this imagination tells a story about our society and it forms the structures upon which our society is built. Theologically, this really matters because it reflects how we see God's children and it affects how we treat one another. Now, the current political imagination has led to us clapping for our NHS heroes and then failing to give them a pay rise in real terms. It's led to private companies profiting over um, providing faulty PPE and failing to track and trace. It's left Marcus Rashford fighting for school children to be fed. And we've all seen the food parcels that the company Chartwell's provided with red peppers cut in half and food packaged in coin bags. If we seek unity without challenging this political imagination, nothing's going to change. In fact, if we look at the increase in inequality since the financial crisis or during the pandemic so far, things will likely get worse. So instead, I want to invite us with Simone Weil to follow in Jesus's footsteps in paying attention. Attention, according to Weil, is born of love. It is the highest and rarest form of generosity. Generosity. 
In a sense, it is prayer. Attention is the way of Jesus. He heard the cry of blind Bartimaeus, noticed the woman bent double at the back of the synagogue, felt the touch of the woman who was bleeding in the crowd who reached for his cloak. In each case, he paid attention to their affliction, met their material need and ruptured the political imagination that would deny their worth. You see, Jesus is never and never has been on the side of oppression. But Christianity and Christians, particularly in the West, often have and continue to be. We need to recognise this and actively interrogate it, admitting where we are implicated. Now, they knows that we naturally recoil at such stark realities, looking for surface level solutions to dilute our despair. Because at our sacred core, we are creatures who relentlessly hope for the good. And it actually hurts us when we see the opposite occurring. But if we are to resist um, perpetuating affliction, we need to, we need to pay attention. Vey says it's actually only through God's grace that this is possible. As we consent to God's grace, he transforms us into his likeness and we are able to attend to the world and to suffering with love. As we do this, we mirror God's loving regard towards us. And so, though fatigued, if we are to avoid maintaining the status quo, we need to pay attention. We must notice the malignant forces within and without the church that propagate injustice. We, as we reckon with the scale of injustice, we rupture the dominion of these forces and create spaces where we might contend with reality. Now, it's going to feel risky, particularly in a world where those who refuse to do the work, they're going to act quicker. But if we're to resist plastering over the pain in the name of unity, we must remain attentive. Here, we might have to admit that we don't have the answers, that we're baffled, in pain, implicated. Instead of rushing to solutions, we might let the atten our attention to affliction affect us admitting that even this being a choice is a privilege. We might allow frustration, anger, even despair to arise because it's here at the end of ourselves that we encounter God and we begin to encounter others beyond ourselves to whom we might turn. For there are people who are well practised in the art of attention to affliction to whom we might turn. Those who existed before this particular crisis as prophetic voices of liberation. Those who are well acquainted with suffering, who have fought to become articulate, to imagine a life and a politics capable of love and justice. Learning from their leading, we might develop a political imagination that is rooted in solidarity, founded in God's grace and reflecting 
the heart of Jesus. Now, this does not look like individual actions. Instead, recognising the systemic reality of the injustices we face, we might build Christian communities of sanctuary, of solidarity, of resistance. It might look like turning over some tables. Because the political imagination that fails to resist structural injustice is not true to Jesus. We must admit where the church has not lived up to its vocation and recognise with hope that Jesus is leading us a different way. As we rupture the dominion of of force, consenting to God's grace, we might together develop a Christian political imagination worthy of Christ's calling in pursuit of love and justice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.